It's just about believing that what you do will count. And I think that that's really the barrier that we face. Your voice does count. Your actions do matter. The only way that we build political power is by people actually showing up and doing things. Welcome to episode 8 of Inside Without Now, a podcast hosted by volunteers with RefuseFascism.org. I'm Sam Goldman, one of those volunteers. This past week, Refuse Fascism's chapter in Philadelphia, which I work with, mobilized to protest Vice President Mike Pence's appearance at the Fraternal Order of Police's Back the Blue event. For an administration that has unleashed military violence against peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C., and threatened the use of military force nationwide, this posed an ominous threat of a police state and was a direct insult to the movement for Black lives. Outside, the crossroads we face was presented in living color. On one side, those backing the blue and the Trump-Pence regime, and on the other side, those protesting this regime and demanding justice for Black lives. Inside, Pence said, On behalf of President Trump and our entire administration, I'll make you a promise. We will always have your back, reinforcing what Trump has said in word and deed. Cops love Trump, and Trump loves cops. The upsurge of the struggle for Black lives deeply scares those in power, and they are committed to crushing it and exacting revenge against any and all who rise up against the white supremacy at the core of this fascist program. Remember when Trump said he had the police, military, and bikers for Trump, the tough people on his side? Well, these tough people showed up in the hundreds for Mike Pence, and they made their position clear. There should have been an outpouring of people opposing Pence. We have to be honest, it wasn't anywhere near large enough. Those that came out, we salute. We have obstacles to overcome. One of the largest being the belief that the way Trump and fascism will be stopped is through the election in November. There's a moral question underpinning a lot of this debate. Will you accept Trump and his whole agenda his agenda of fascism, of a triad of white supremacy, misogyny, xenophobia, the shredding of the rule of law, basic civil and democratic rights. Will you accept that as legitimate if he stays in power? The moral answer is no. And if you won't accept it then, clearly the time to act is now. But there's some nuance to get into there. So for this episode, we're sharing two conversations. First, we'll hear a discussion between myself and Sarah Rourke and Coco Das, co-editors of RefuseFascism.org, talking about these moral dimensions, the deadly delusions that people hold. Then we'll hear a conversation with activist Lena Thorne and Reverend Michael Wolf, exploring these moral questions from another angle. These discussions were taped in May and April, respectively, prior to the eruption of the Black Lives Matter protest movement. You see the shredding of the norms. You see him attacking people that disagree with him. And then anybody who's loyal to him gets defended. And you can see these clear signs of a fascist regime, whether it's the attacks on the rule of law, the the continuation of lock her up, who her is changes, but the Mm -hmm. sentiment stays the same. His opponents, the unprecedented attacks on whole sections of people, the Christian fascists and the judiciary, the anti-science, all of that. And then people still will say, well, we've got November. I don't know if people don't get or are willfully denying that once this gets consolidated, that this being fascism, 
it closes off the ability for anyone inside or outside the halls of power to challenge or stop them. How do we help people confront this? There's an article also on our homepage that was originally from Revcom called Fascism Denialism is as Dangerous Climate Denialism, and it's a very important read. There does come a point where it becomes too late to actually stop millions of people from being harmed once the regime consolidates power. We are sort of in a race for time. And so it is really important that we really confront people on understanding that you have to step out of normal channels to stop this fascism. I really like this podcast, Deconstructed, with Mehdi Hassan, and he was interviewing somebody. They had a really rich discussion, used the word fascistic, talked about how Trump might not step down if he loses the election. I was listening really closely and where he asked two questions and there was a crucial question he did not ask. I'm starting to think that this is a big part of where this fascism denialism lies and how we need to break through to the other side. The two questions he asked were, what should the media be doing? Because the media has been complicit. And what should the Democrats do? After saying that there wasn't that much that the Democrats could do. But the question he did not ask was, what should we do? It just really struck me that a lot of this denialism is to get out of that question, what do we do? What should we do? And looking for the savior that in these norms that are being shredded, these people who are being demonized. I got a tweet saying that the Democrats are the demon craft. The extreme end of this base, which is very activated, actually believes that the opposition is possessed by demons. So this is not a movement that's just going to go away through an election. So, and I'm speaking for myself here, but just constantly saying, what are you going to do about this? Sarah, you raised this point that what we allow is not what we condone. It's what we become. You're, you are becoming somebody by waiting for November. And is that the person you want to become? And I think we do have to help people follow their own logic. I've been listening to this podcast for a while, and he's come a long way to even say that this is fascistic. You have fascism denialism from the fascists themselves, right? Then there's all the denialism among the people who really are on the side of humanity and are just stuck in a line of thinking that is actually taking them down a road complicity. So I was wondering if you have any thoughts on like how you handle that or what you think. Have you had any epiphanies lately? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, like not not completely new epiphanies. I see the process continuing that's been continuing, which is part of why I wrote that drinks at Sobibor piece, Mm -hmm. which was really about that you can become something that you didn't mean to be. There the book recommendation I would like to make is they thought they were free. I think the the last name of the author is Meyer, Mayer, M-A-Y-E-R. This is just post-war. He's a Jewish scholar who went to Germany and befriended these various guys who had been in the Nazi party, some of them because they were Nazis, some because they didn't want to get shot, and befriended them. They didn't know he was Jewish. He didn't volunteer the information. So he got really quite intimate conversations and confessions from these men. And one of them who was an engineer and very thoughtful, because everybody at that time after the war was asking, how did this happen? You know, Germans are not apes. They're not savages. How did how did this all become possible in a, in a civilized country? And in fact, in one of the countries which was 
up to then considered one of the friendliest countries for Jews and sexual minorities and other people. And he said, well, you know, it it doesn't just happen uh, in all one step. You don't go from step A to step E. It comes in stages. And if you didn't resist at stage B, then why should you resist at stage C? And if you didn't do anything at stage C, then what's one more stage? And then suddenly one day you're hearing your, your small child say death to Jew swine and you realize that you've allowed this monstrosity to happen right under your nose. I'm paraphrasing him. That's basically what he said. What he said was that you can become somebody you didn't intend to be by your inaction and by remaining in an environment that's becoming more and more poisonous and not questioning it and not resisting it. And that was why he counted himself as guilty, even though his joining the Nazi party was just to keep his job. I found that very powerful. And that's, I think, what a lot of the denialism is about. I've been at presentations where people have straight up said to me, if you pin them down, they will say this. The problem is, if I agreed with you that it was fascism, then I would have to do something about it. Then I would need to do something radical about it. Okay, so you just write reason backwards from your desired conclusion. You don't want to do that. So it must not be fascism. That's not okay. And um, there I will agree with Bob Avakian that I I am not personally a communist of any kind, including a Mm -hmm. RCP communist. There are points on which I don't agree with Bob Avakian. And um, especially as a sort of mainstreamish Democrat, sometimes his criticisms of the party are fair. Sometimes they are not. But I would encourage people, even in my sector of politics, which was considered wild and out there in the 90s and is no longer considered out there. Uh, It's very mainstream now. Open your mind and listen to people whose ideologies are different from yours. If their base principles are where they need to be, that humanity is human, humanity has to come first, the planet has to survive, science is a thing. These basic principles, if they're there for them, and Bava Vakian is there for those principles, listen to what he has to say. You don't have to agree with all of it. The reason that he is quoted in some of these materials is that he has a point. And one of those points he makes is that you can't reason backwards from what you wanted to do anyway to what the facts are. You you don't get to do that. The the facts have to be what the facts are, and you have to proceed from them. You get your own opinions, but you don't get your own facts, as the proverb says. I think this is really important, and I think we'll probably have to end on this, but, you know, we don't have to agree on everything, but if you agree that the future of humanity and the planet is worth saving, and that this regime is a a blocking issue for anything good that any of us want, then join us and let's make a united front under this demand. Trump, Pence must go, and we don't have to agree, we can argue it out in you know the streets as we're working nonviolently, but join us and really let's dig into what it is holding people back and how do we help with our arms wide open welcome them into this really just cause that is historic understand that you've actually studied some of the experience of the consolidation of fascism in Germany and sort of the role the church played either in a proactive way in terms of collaborating with that regime or in a more passive way in terms of staying silent or 
retreating into purely non-political fears. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. I think when we first started Refuse Fascism, we were constantly accused of being alarmists and not getting just how different this was, that Trump was clearly incompetent and a clown, but the parallels did not be drawn. And we're getting a lot less pushback these days. I think people need to get up to speed real quick about just really what are the key lessons to draw about that experience, especially from your perspective, what that experience was like for the religious communities. Sure. I mean, I'll talk briefly. I'm not a scholar of it by any means. I wrote my uh, undergraduate dissertation on it. So it's it's a long time ago. That counts. But, uh, but one of the things that I think is the hallmark of the church in, in Germany, at least on the Lutheran side of things, is that it was a state institution, which makes it a little different than our, our current case. But the way that scripture was rewritten and reinterpreted to really coincide with Nazi ideals, it was the hallmark of that relationship. So scripture actually changed. And if you actually look at depictions of Jesus from the 1920s and Weimar Republic days, and you and you look at uh, Nazi German depictions of Jesus, you'll see that Jesus is much more masculine, much more muscular, and conforms a lot more to this sort of Aryan ideal. And so you get this idea that religion is sort of a technology of the state in some way, that it's malleable, and religion is pretty malleable. I don't think that that's uh, something that you can deny. But religion is malleable and able to be used as this sort of tool of the state and able to be changed. Of course, there were a few ministers who Niemöller, markedly, Bonhoeffer, these are two big names that kind of stood up and said no to it. I think we were talking about enticements. A lot of people didn't want to lose their pension, I think. Uh, a lot of people didn't uh, weren't interested in losing their salary, especially for clergy. And a lot of people went along with putting Nazi flags next to the cross. A lot of people saw, and a lot of people were excited by that project, I think, in Nazi Germany, too. I think that's yeah. the other part of it, sort of Lutheran and German identity coinciding with Nazism was thought of as a shared national project. It was thought of as something that naturally sort of went together as part of the German spirit, Christianity, the German spirit, and uh, the church and the state kind of went together in that way. I think now what you see is that these sort of religious leaders, especially on the right, who are willing absolutely to change whatever religious ideals they once had, whatever theology they had, that's completely malleable around the current political project of supporting a president. You see a lot of people on the religious right, whatever this president does, it's going to be ordained by God or that God, God thinks it's great, especially when it's in praise of uh, unrestricted capitalism. They seem to think that it's even grander and they definitely think of the president as uh, anointed in some divine way. And I think that that's extraordinarily dangerous, especially when I read scripture, what I see is a, a real hesitancy around ascribing God's grace or anointing to any sort of political leader and, and a deep suspicion of the state really is what I see, at least in the gospels. But that doesn't change it from political power and religious power being in bed together is kind of par for the course in many ways and uh, continues well, to play today. And that's one of the things that is sort of baffling to me is there is this sort of anti-government tendency that seems to coexist with this worship of Trump. Yeah, I just wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. There are some that. religious folks who are, um, who are anti-government but pro-Trump. I think that the desire for a coherent theological worldview, if that's your desire on figuring that out, I think it will evade you. What you can see in that theological worldview is one that goes easy for power and is uh, really interested 
empower, and I would say is deeply interested and deeply invested in white supremacy. And I think that that's really one of the major theological points. Talk about theology, and people think this is just about God, but it's perfectly possible to have a central tenet of your theology without ever explicitly saying it be white supremacy. And I think that that's really what you see is you've got a president who has explicitly stated in many different ways and implicitly stated and signaled to others that he he is in support of those ideas and that he does support those, whether you talk about travel bans or uh, whether you're talking uh, about uh, visa bans and all these different uh, Muslim nations you see as a real core tenet, I think, is white supremacy and that us versus them nature of it. And I think you see that from generally white evangelicals and folks who, and fundamentalists who are supportive of Trump because he increases their power and relevance in society and because their ideas about restricting women's access to abortion are ascendant when Trump is in power because he knows he needs their votes and he knows that gets them excited. And a whole host of restrictive measures that are misogynist and, and uh, homophobic and a, a whole host of things that he brings to the table for them. So I think that those are not traditional theological values, but I think that that is the theology at work there. And I think that it's um, pretty plain to see. Here's another way of discussing that. How do you sort of reconcile your clarity on these topics, which I think it's sort of at this point you'd have to be lying you know, to, to deny that, that reality, I think. Um, and yet we so rarely hear any of the mainstream religious figures really calling it what it is. And I'm wondering if you can, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm missing some of that, but what is going on where we're seeing basically, people have talked about the normalization of Trump. Well, we're, we're not just talking about normalizing Trump, we're talking about the mainstreaming of racism, of white supremacy, of hatred of brown and black people. You know, it's a sort of a genocidal fervor that's being whipped up and and the flames are being fanned, but we don't hear it actually being denounced or called out for what it is um, from a lot of of people who who really ought to know better. Yeah, I mean, and, and some of that is that people are, uh, they're hesitant to, to kind of wade into the political sphere or to bring some of their theology. If you are generally, if you are on the more centrist to progressive end of things in the religious sphere, you're hesitant to do some of that. So I do think there are a lot of people talking about this every Sunday from their pulpit. Uh, it's just that they're, they're also preaching largely in American congregations that are progressive to 50 to 100 people at a time, and they, and they don't have a lot of a megaphone. So that's one part of it. Uh, mm-hmm. The other part is that I just think that there is, uh, amongst pr- progressive folks, I think that the, the religious voice is not as important, and that's, t- that's totally okay. And I think it is still important, as you can tell by I'm here, and I want to spend some time talking about stuff. But uh, I do think that at least for the right, that kind of merger of religious authority and state authority is a sort of natural marriage. And so they are, they have uh, much bigger platforms, but I agree. I mean, Hey, if you want me to talk, talk a little crap about my clergy colleagues for not calling a spade a spade, I can do that a little bit too. Uh, I do think that clergy have uh, grown a little bit too uh, wary to wade in and just speak very frankly about what they see and how they feel about things. And that's for a variety of reasons. And some of them are, are better than others, but some of it is a little bit of a, of a cowardice factor. I won't say it's not. And some, well, of, it, some and of it's I happening and you don't hear it. That's the other part too. So it's not, it's not everybody. Yeah. It's happening in pulpits and um, people, a lot of people aren't there or 
there, it's not happening necessarily on CNN. Uh, you know, it's, it's yeah. not happening on a news network, but it may be happening in pulpits. And yeah, uh, but I wish there was more sort of forthright calling the spade a spade. And I totally hear what you're saying about, uh, you know, some of it's happening and we don't hear about it because we know whenever we go out and talk to people in the real world, we always meet people who agree or appreciate what we're saying, et cetera, et cetera. And the world that we live in, the way that attention is focused on the wrong things, let's say, <laughs> makes people feel really isolated and, and alienated. And to bring it back to the statement of conscience that Refuse Fascism has put together, the idea here is to, to put out, to put together this description of what we're facing and a call to action that speaks to the moment that we're in and to cohere something around that. And we all know that none of us as individuals or even as a small group of people are going to be able to stop this regime. This is a, a giant uh, problem that we are facing and it is going to take millions of people. And ultimately, I think it's going to take millions of people in the streets to actually get them out. And Lord knows this is with this pandemic going to be that much more difficult and challenging. But at the end of the day, it's true. If we allow them to stay in power, this is going to get that much worse. I'm going to just read one little quote um, for people who have not been able to read this statement yet. It's at refusefascism.org. And I do encourage everyone to read the whole thing and add your name. The anti-science Trump-Pence regime hid the danger of the COVID-19 virus, now a pandemic, for months, setting the stage for possibly catastrophic impact and placing those who have been targets of their overall program in the most jeopardy. Immigrants forced into shadows and concentration camps, millions of black and brown people languishing in prisons, the people of Iran facing crippling sanctions, the poor, sick, and homeless here and around the world. Do you think that we've covered enough what religious people, religious leaders, the religious public at large ought to be doing politically more so? I think that some of my more religious friends will say, well, I'm praying. Why is that one thing, but it's not actually dealing necessarily with the, well, I think that just like the political necessity that we're facing? At the protests I've been at, you, you get the people who are willing to honk for you, but they're not really actually willing to get out there, right? And so that, that's, a, that's a similar thing to I'm definitely going to pray about it. Um, and, and I get it. That's, that's a honk. That's, a, that's a, I'm there with you. I feel the same way. But it's also an expression, I think, when people say that they're, they're going to pray, pray for it or something like that. To me, that's also an expression that people feel a real sense of powerlessness about what they can do about yeah. it. And they don't really believe that it's, that it's anything, any power is within their hands or their capacity to do something. So they say, well, it's not within my power. Perhaps it's in the divine's power. Perhaps the, the divine uh, can hear this petition in some way. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a honk. It's saying, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. But yeah. what can I do? What, what can I do? And so the thing that I think progressive people of faith ought to really embrace is that you can do a lot. Um, and I think that it, it does take uh, time energy, attention, money, all that sort of stuff to be able to bring real political power to bear and uh, to bring political power that's in keeping with your religious beliefs, that's in keeping with your highest moral callings in life. Uh, one of the ways that we play out our spiritual beliefs and we play out our spiritual lives is by uh, supporting and building political power around the things that we believe in that our faith leads us to, care for the most vulnerable, a society where all people can flourish, 
the fact that these prisons should release their prisoners, which seems like a clear moral ask that we can make. All these sorts of things are, are possible. Praying is, is less than writing, you know, writing to your representatives. It's, it's less than doing a lot of things. And so it's less than even building the sort of mutual um, collaboration and aid that we can as a community to sort of uh, build a resilient and resistant structure to a fascist regime. So there's a, there's a lot of things to do. It's just about believing that what you do will count. And I think that that's really the barrier that we face. You face it in the religious world in churches. Well, I don't, you have a good idea or you want to do something, but oh, I can't do that. Uh, also about empowering people to do stuff in church is the same thing about empowering people to say, your voice does count. Your actions do matter. The only way that we build political power is by people actually showing up and doing things. There's no other way to really do it. And in terms of people feeling powerless, one thing I think about is, I was reminded about this today, uh, there's an article in Bloomberg, of all places, predicting that the pandemic is going to lead to a wave of uprisings around the world and pointing out that over the course of 2019, something like 20 countries saw um, these you know, mass upsurges of protest movements that resulted in the ouster of a number of uh, political leaders, including in Lebanon, Puerto Rico, a variety of very different countries. And these are the types of movements that give me hope. And I hope that, that other people also look into not just ancient history. Right now in this era, what is going on around the world where people are able to take power, you know, to control the situation far beyond just their community or their friends and family and neighbors and drive out tyrants and oppressive governments. The other thing, though, that worries me is that these things, if left to spontaneity, especially in a country like this, with its long history of, of white supremacy and just cruelty and meanness, that's not necessarily going to lead to anything really good. The good people, we've got to get organized. We've got to work to make this movement happen in the right way. We're calling for a mass sustained nonviolent protest movement that puts humanity first. Not our own narrow grievances, but the needs of the whole planet. We have demands up on, on our website, Refuse Fascism, related to this pandemic. And the first demand has to do with the, the needs of the planet and the fact that this, this is the richest country, the most powerful country. So what this government does internationally is it's not just about what's happening to us here. It's about what's happening to everyone around the planet. And the idea of demonizing people in China or immigrants or just any vulnerable group, any other group of people, it's just so, it's not just counterproductive. It's the kind of thing that can lead to an absolute, even worse catastrophe. I don't know if you have a, a, a response to, to that, but no, I mean, I, I do think that uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take people who are able to articulate a vision of what the world can be. So I think one of the things that the pandemic has shown folks and has shown is that when people say, well, we think it'd be really good to take care of people who are vulnerable in our society, but there's just no money for it and we just can't do it. The pandemic has revealed that, um, in, in fact, people, when motivated by the threat of really angry people, can get a lot done, it, it, and they can get a lot done very fast when faced with demands. One of the things I would encourage folks is to say, 
is to, to never accept that it's, something's not possible, really, uh, fr- from our government, especially, and, and from this government or whatever future uh, administration is in power. I, I think it's really important to know that the people really set the limits of what is possible and what is impossible. And so it's going to take some people who hold an ethical center who are able to propose actually a vision of, of what that society is going to do. That's the reason why I'm involved with Refuse Fascism is because it seems like there's there's a real coalition of many different people from a lot of different perspectives, but who are united with one goal about trying to make a, a better future. And I think that's really admirable and good. Well, and we really appreciate you. <laughs> this is not going to happen any other way if, if we don't come together and, and make the demand that specifically that this regime must go. We, we have a new hashtag that we've been promoting the heck out of, hashtag out now. Whatever you are most upset about. And, you know, before the pandemic, I mean, the list was long enough. And now it's just absolutely, it's so intense. Um, but that they need to go, Trump and Pence and their regime has to go. And that that the basis of unity and people who've been then fighting with each other a lot, progressive side, you know, over the last few years. But at the end of the day, if we allow this regime to stay in power, none of the positive change that we want to see happen is going to be possible. Thanks for joining us this week. If you recognize that the normal channels will not address the crisis that we're in, you are needed to join us in organizing now for sustained mass nonviolent protests to drive out the Trump-Pence regime. Refuse fascism is a movement of ordinary people, just like you, working to change the course of history together. There's a role for everyone in this movement. You can find out how you can get involved and learn more at refusefascism.org. You can connect with chapters in most major cities, find resources to spread the Trump-Pence Out Now message in your community. Sign up to stay in touch. And of course, donate. Your contributions go to keeping the national movement, including the website humming, print signs and stickers, and support protests happening nationwide at this critical time. But most of all, right now, if you're listening to this podcast, we need you to subscribe, rate, and review so that others will find us and get connected too. In the name of humanity, we refuse to accept a fascist America. Trump Pence, out now. See you in the street soon.